This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to DM Basic Podcast. Today we'll be talking about seizures. We see seizures a lot in ED, so we need to know how to treat them. Today we're going to be talking about adults with seizures. We won't be talking about febrile seizures in kids, or seizures caused by trauma, because those are episodes unto themselves. We'll talk about how to initially evaluate the patient who comes in, who is actively seizing, or has just had a seizure, and we'll also talk about the topic of pseudo-seizure, since I know this is a confusing topic, to say the least. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views and opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. Let's start by talking about patients who have come in who are not actively seizing, and then we'll talk about those patients who are actively seizing and may be critically ill, so we get the basics down before we start talking about the critical care. As always, it's important to read the triage note and look at the vitals. Most of these patients who are not actively seizing will come in saying that they thought they had a seizure or someone witnessed them having a seizure. Look for any history of a seizure disorder, any mention of trauma, and look at the medication list to see if the patient is on any seizure medications. When you go into the room, assess the patient to make sure they are awake. Get a good history on exactly what happened. It is really helpful if the patient is there with a family member or bystander who witnessed the episode and you want to involve them in the conversation. Ask if the patient has had any symptoms before their seizure, such as headache, vision changes, or any sort of aura. If the patient has a history of seizures, they will probably have a prodrome that is familiar to them, so ask about whether they had this feeling before the seizure started. Find out whether the patient has a history of a seizure disorder or takes any seizure medications. You also want to ask about the events that led up to the seizure. Ask if there was any head trauma or if the patient was taking their seizure medications as prescribed for the past few days to weeks. At this point, it's good to ask the family or bystanders exactly what they witnessed. Ask them to describe what they saw and how long it lasted. This can be a little bit challenging because most witnesses overestimate the length of the seizure due to being surprised and stressed out by seeing it. Ask them if all the extremities were involved or just one extremity. Was it actual tonic-clonic movements, or did the patient just stare off into space? Ask them if the patient was making any sounds or grunting during the seizure. If necessary, have them show you exactly what they witnessed. Another important question is whether the patient's eyes were wide open or closed tightly. This will become important later when we talk about pseudo-seizures. Another question that's important to ask regarding pseudo-seizures is whether the patient was loose, floppy, and shaking, or all tensed up. You'll also want to ask how fast it took the patient to return to their baseline. Were they alert and oriented times three immediately after the shaking stopped, or were they confused for a while? Then you can ask the patient or the family members whether the patient had any bowel or bladder incontinence as a result of the seizure activity. The really important thing to differentiate here in the history is that the patient didn't have trauma or this wasn't syncope. In the syncope episode, we talked about how patients with syncope can sometimes have a few myoclonic jerks after passing out. These are common in syncopal episodes, and they don't represent a seizure. If the patient had a few jerky movements of their extremities after going to the ground and wakes up right away, that wasn't a seizure. These are called myoclonic jerks, which can be normal after syncope due to a temporary loss of blood flow to the brain. A few quick jerks can be normal, but sustained shaking represents a seizure. Also remember that syncope is a sudden loss of consciousness with a loss of postural tone with a rapid return to baseline. If the patient fell to the ground and woke up rapidly, 
that isn't a seizure, and it needs to be worked up with syncope. Mistaking syncope for a seizure is a common trap that providers fall into, so be sure to get a clear history, and if you have any doubts as to syncope versus a seizure, get an EKG just to be sure. We'll talk more about the seizure workup later in the podcast, but this is a really important point to mention up front. You also want to ask the patient up front about any alcohol or illegal drug use, since alcohol withdrawal and illicit drugs like cocaine can cause seizures by themselves. At this point, make sure to take a full and complete past medical history and ask about the patient's medications, allergies, and surgeries. Also ask the patient if they have ever been worked up for a seizure before and whether they have ever had a head CT or MRI, as this may assist you in your workup. Now let's talk about the physical exam for seizures. There isn't a lot to talk about here, except the stress that you need to do a head-to-toe exam looking for trauma and do a thorough neuro exam. I reviewed the neuro exam in the headache episode, but I also made a separate neuro exam supplement as a separate episode. So if you need to review the neuro exam, go back to those episodes and check that out. Now let's talk about the different types of seizures. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on all the seizure types, but I'll talk about the most common types so you can at least be aware of the broad classifications. After that, we'll talk about some possible causes for seizures. You'll notice that this list shares a lot of similarities with the differential diagnosis for altered mental status. First, seizures are divided into a few broad categories. The first is primary or secondary seizures, although this term isn't used a lot. Primary seizures are due to a seizure disorder, while a secondary seizure is due to another medical problem like meningitis, mass or bleed, or toxicological causes. The next classification is generalized or partial seizures. Partial seizures are also called focal seizures. The two terms are used interchangeably, but I use the term partial seizures. Generalized seizures involve both cerebral hemispheres, while focal seizures involve only one hemisphere. The most common type of generalized seizure is tonic-clonic, which involves the rapid tensing and relaxation of muscles throughout the entire body with a loss of consciousness. Another type of generalized seizure that you may see in the pediatric population is an absence seizure. This is where the child will stare off into space for about 5 to 30 seconds and then snap right back to normal. Partial seizures are further classified into simple and complex partial seizures. In simple partial seizures, consciousness is maintained, while there is a loss of consciousness with complex partial seizures. Now let's talk about the secondary causes of seizures. It's very important to consider the possible causes of seizures besides epilepsy. You don't want to miss a potentially reversible cause of seizures, so you'll want to run through your differential on every patient. In the altered mental status episode, we talked about two mnemonics that can help out with the differential diagnosis. These same mnemonics also work well for secondary causes of seizure as well. The mnemonic to use is A-E-I-O-U-TIPS. If you want to shorten this down to the most common causes of altered mental status, I recommend the mnemonics TINE or NETI. That's T-I-N-E or N-E-T-T-I. So let's quickly go through what A-E-I-O-U-TIPS stands for. A is for alcohols and acidosis. This includes toxic alcohols like methanol. E is for electrolytes. This is very important to consider because hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, and hyperkalemia can all cause seizures. I is for insulin and ischemia. The insulin part implies too much insulin, aka hypoglycemia, 
and ischemia is a reminder regarding stroke. O is for oxygen. This stands for hypoxia or hypercarbia. U is for uremia or renal failure. T is for toxins, trauma, and temperature. Just about any toxin can cause seizures, while head trauma can cause intracranial bleeding that can lead to seizures, and temperature refers to hypo or hyperthermia. I is for infection. This is a big reminder to consider meningitis and the differential for seizures. P is for psychiatric and polypharmacy. You can say it stands for pseudo-seizure, which is a psychiatric issue, and polypharmacy reminds you to think about drug interactions. S is for stroke, space-occupying lesion, or subarachnoid hemorrhage. Basically, anything that takes up space inside the skull can cause a seizure. Now, AEIOU tips is a long mnemonic to remember, so I have shortened it down to the mnemonic TINE, T-I-N-E, in order to remember the most common causes of altered mental status and seizures. The T stands for toxins and trauma, I is for infection, N is for neurologic, and E is for electrolytes. If you don't like the fact that T stands for two things in that mnemonic, you can make the mnemonic neti, like a neti pot. That's N-E-T-T-I. So that's N for neurologic, E for electrolytes, T for toxins, T for trauma, and I for infection. Don't worry, because all this will be written down in the show notes. Before we move on, while we're talking about the differential diagnosis of seizures, a quick reminder about Todd's paralysis. If you have a patient whom you think may be having a stroke because they have a focal neurodeficit, make sure to verify that the patient didn't have a seizure prior to the neurodeficit appearing. This is called Todd's paralysis, and it can be a contraindication for thrombolytics and stroke. Let's review the initial evaluation of the seizure patient before we talk about treatment of seizures. Make sure to review the triage note and get the entire history. For patients who aren't actively seizing, get as much history as you can from the patient and their family or any bystanders. Ask about what happened before the seizure to make sure that the patient didn't sustain any trauma beforehand. Ask about associated signs and symptoms, like an aura preceding the seizure, bowel or bladder incontinence, and exactly what any bystanders witnessed. Ask them if the patient's eyes were wide open or stuck shut. Was the patient loose and floppy or tense all over? Also make sure that this wasn't syncope. If the patient went down quickly and woke up quickly without any confusion, that is likely syncope and should be worked up as such, starting with an EKG. If you have any doubts regarding the cause of a seizure or suspect a tox cause, get an EKG. Next, make sure to take a complete medical history with special attention to the patient's medications, use of drugs, or ingestion of any toxins. Ask if the patient has had a seizure before, whether they are taking seizure medications, and whether they have ever had imaging before with a non-contrast head CT or MRI. For the physical exam, make sure to do a head-to-toe exam to check for trauma and do a complete neuro exam. Finally, go through the secondary causes of seizure with the mnemonic AEIOU tips, where you can shorten it to TYNE or NETI. Before we start talking about the treatment of seizures in the ED, let's talk about pseudoseizures. This is a very confusing topic, and it's not one that was well covered in medical school. The first time I saw a pseudoseizure, I really didn't know what that was, and I thought it was an actual seizure. The attending took one look at the patient from across the room and reassured me that it was a pseudoseizure, and it stopped shortly thereafter. First, let's define pseudoseizure. 
The first thing to mention is that pseudoseizure is technically not the correct term for it. The implication from the pseudo part of pseudoseizure is that the patient is faking it, but that is not the case. The new technical term is psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, or PNES for short. Yep, that's right, PNES, so let's keep the laughter down to a minimum. That being said, I've never heard anyone use the term PNES, only pseudoseizure, probably for obvious reasons. I've also seen the term non-epileptic attack disorder, or NEAD. I like this term better because PNES has the word seizure in it, and pseudoseizures are not actually seizures. The two big points to remember are that pseudoseizures are not actually seizures, and the patient is not faking it. When patients have pseudoseizures, there is no seizure activity on an EEG, but it kind of looks like they're having a seizure, and they're easily mistaken for an actual seizure. It's also important to realize that in most cases, the patient is not faking a pseudoseizure. There are patients who will fake a seizure to get out of police custody by shaking and even wetting themselves, but that is not the same as a pseudoseizure. You can think of a pseudoseizure as a patient's own reaction to a stressful event or situation. To put it another way, some people deal with stress by going for a run or jumping out of an airplane, while others have pseudoseizures. The patient can't control these episodes, and they can't initiate them spontaneously. While patients with pseudoseizures often have psychiatric diagnoses, you have to make sure that you don't judge the patient or say that they are faking it. The other fact to know is that between 10 and 30% of patients with a known seizure disorder proven on EEG also have pseudoseizures, so the two processes can coexist. The other fact to know is that patients with pseudoseizures can take years to get diagnosed correctly, so it can be frustrating for the patient because they may be blown off by their doctors as being malingerers. To illustrate this point, let me tell a quick story. I've changed the details to maintain the patient's privacy. So I had EMS bring in a young woman saying that she had a witness seizure in front of them and was given IM Ativan and the seizure activity stopped. I didn't see the patient right away, but as I entered the room, I witnessed the patient having a pseudo seizure. We'll talk about how I knew this in a minute. So I watched the patient for about a minute and the pseudo seizure stopped and the patient immediately woke up awake and alert. The first thing the patient said was, did I just have a pseudo seizure? I told her that yes, she had just had a pseudo-seizure, and the first words out of her mouth was, This sucks. I hate having these. I get stressed out at home, I pass out, and I wake up drugged up in the hospital. This patient was unusual, because not a lot of patients have insight into the fact that pseudo-seizures are a result of stress. This is probably because no providers have sat them down and explained pseudo-seizures to them, or have written them off for a long time. I tell this story because it's important to realize that these patients aren't faking and they don't like having these episodes. This is just the patient's own individual reaction to stressful situations, so it's important to remain non-judgmental and reassure the patient that this wasn't an actual seizure. Keep in mind that pseudo-seizures and seizures can coexist, so the patient will still need follow-up to ensure further workup. Finally, let's talk about how to recognize a pseudo-seizure. The most valuable pearl here is that, in general, Patients with actual generalized tonic-clonic seizures have their eyes wide open during the seizure, while patients with pseudoseizures have their eyes tightly shut. One study in patients with both seizures and pseudoseizures on video EEG showed that eyes tightly shut was the most sensitive and specific physical exam finding for pseudoseizures as compared to an actual seizure. The other important finding is a lack of a post-ictal period. 
patients with actual seizures will have a history of a post-ictal confusion and altered mental status, while a patient with pseudo-seizures will wake up immediately, awake and alert. This is a big difference, and it's an important one to remember. You can't have an actual generalized tonic-clonic seizure without having at least some period of post-ictal confusion. Other signs of pseudo-seizures that are uncommon in actual seizures are turning the head side to side, vocalizing during the episode, and pelvic thrusting. I won't reference the popular YouTube video on seizures here that I'm sure everyone has seen, but a good rule of thumb is that if it looks like a dance move, it's probably a pseudo-seizure. Finally, the way you can usually tell a pseudo-seizure from an actual seizure is that in general, patients with a pseudo-seizure are all tensed up and stiff with their eyes closed, while those with generalized tonic-clonic seizures are loose and floppy with their eyes open. Now let's talk about the workup and treatment of seizures. We'll talk first about the patient who isn't actively seizing, then the patient who is actively seizing in front of you. Let's say that you had a patient who had a new onset witness seizure. They are awake and alert with a normal neuro exam. You've taken a complete history and can't find an obvious reason for the seizure. In these patients, the general workup will be labs and a non-contrast head CT. You should also have a very low threshold for an EKG, just in case this was really syncope. The key here to remember is that the head CT is for patients with a new onset seizure disorder. Patients with a known seizure disorder don't necessarily need a head CT with each seizure unless they have significant head trauma or are altered for another reason like meningitis. Labs in a new onset seizure patient will generally be low yield, especially if the patient is young and healthy, but they are worth checking just to be complete. Off the bat, you can get a finger stick glucose, but if the patient is awake and talking to you and is not on insulin or a hypoglycemic medication, hypoglycemia will be an unlikely cause of a seizure. Older patients will have a higher yield for electrolyte disorders. In general, you'll want to get a CBC, Chem 10, and a urine HCG for females. You'll mostly be looking for any extreme electrolyte disorders like hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, or hypoglycemia. Some may suggest doing a urine drug screen on all these patients looking for illicit drugs that could have caused a seizure, like cocaine, but the toxicologists out there will scoff at the cross-reactions and how it really won't change your management. With regards to imaging, most guidelines recommend a non-contrast head CT for every patient with a new onset seizure. The reason you'll do this is to make sure that the patient doesn't have a mass that could have caused their seizure. The head CT will most likely be negative in younger patients, but the yield is high enough for it to be worth it in this population. Now let's talk about the patient who has a known seizure disorder who is awake and alert. These patients will probably not need a lot of testing, but you need to talk with the patient to try and figure out why they may have had a seizure. Most of the time, it is because the patient hasn't been taking their medications as prescribed. However, physiologic stressors such as infections, trauma, and even inadequate food intake can also trigger seizures. In addition, make sure to check the patient's medication list and make sure they didn't start a new medication that would decrease the blood level of their seizure medication. If the patient has a known seizure disorder and you've figured out a plausible explanation and don't suspect an infection or trauma or any other secondary cause, you probably won't have to do much of a workup. You'll still do a good history and physical to make sure something else didn't cause the seizure, but that really may be it. As always, it's a good idea to check the urine HCG in females. If the patient is awake and alert and has had imaging of their brain, 
with a CT or an MRI before, then you can pretty much stop there. If the patient was not taking their medications as prescribed, you can also check levels of certain medications, but I don't think this is an absolute necessity. While most EDs can get a phenytoin, aka dilant level, back on a stat basis, other medications like levitracetam, aka Keppra, are send-out tests that don't come back for days. As far as giving the patient an IV dose of their seizure medication in the ED, some argue against doing this, but I really don't see a big downside. There's little harm in giving the patient an IV dose of Keppra in the ED to get their levels up quicker. If the patient is on phenytoin, you can do a rapid oral loading dose of it in the ED. The excellent blog, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine, had a post on this a while back, so if you're interested, you can find the link at embasic.org. While there's pretty good evidence for this, I wouldn't quite call it standard practice, so just keep that in mind. So now you are left with a patient who has had a seizure with a negative workup. The final question is, what is their disposition? Most of these patients can be safely discharged from the ED with primary care or neurology follow-up. For the patients with a first-time seizure, most neurologists won't start anti-epileptic medications until a second or even third seizure, so it's not necessary to discharge the new onset patient with a prescription for seizure medications. However, you need to be very clear with your discharge instructions that the patient needs to avoid any dangerous activities in case they have another seizure. I tell each patient that they can't drive, swim, operate heavy machinery, or go scuba diving, skydiving, or any other possibly dangerous activities until they are cleared to do so by another doctor. Make sure the patient understands that if they do these things and have another seizure, they may kill themselves or someone else. In addition, I tell the patient that they should shower with a chair in the tub in case they should they feel another seizure coming on and have someone close by just in case. You should also tell the, the patient not to take a bath for the same reasons. Now these precautions seem extreme and maybe the patients won't follow the ones about the shower, but it's important to protect the patient, those around the patient, and yourself from any problems. Finally, some states require a report to the Department of Motor Vehicles for all new onset seizures so that the patient has their license suspended until they are seizure-free for six months. Check on your local laws and make sure that you follow them in regards to mandatory reporting or you could get in trouble. Finally, make sure to document in your chart that you gave seizure precautions and spell those out in your discharge instructions. Don't just leave it to the computer. If the patient has a known seizure disorder with a negative exam and workup, they can be discharged to the care of their primary care doctor or their neurologist. If they are out of their seizure medications, refill a very limited amount until the patient can get to see their provider for a refill. I think refilling a week of medication is reasonable, but don't fall into the trap of refilling an entire month or longer where the patient won't follow up. If the patient is compliant with their medications, it might be worth a call to their, their neurologist to see if they want to increase the dosage of the patient's medications and to arrange follow-up. Finally, let's talk about the meat and potatoes of this episode, how to treat the patient that is actively seizing. This is where we get into the critical care side of the patient with seizures. There are several key pearls to remember here. First and foremost, all patients with altered mental status, to include seizures, are hypoglycemic until proven otherwise. You need to get a rapid finger stick glucose in any patient who is seizing. Don't be that provider who goes all the way down the status epilepticus algorithm and then gets the chemistry panel back with a glucose of 10. 
If you can't get a rapid finger stick glucose for some reason, then just push an amp of D50 IV to take hypoglycemia off the table. The second big point is that patients with seizures die from hypoxia. Your first and foremost concern with a patient needs to be maintaining their oxygenation and ventilation. If the patient is actively seizing, then you'll want to apply a non-rebreather face mask at 15 liters per minute, and it's never a bad idea to apply a nasal cannula underneath the mask to provide even more oxygen and to provide apneic oxygenation in case you end up intubating the patient. So make sure to always keep an eye on the patient's pulse ox and provide as much high flow oxygen as you can while you work to control the seizure. However, one important point to remember is that the pulse ox may not be accurate in patients with seizures. So look for other signs of hypoxia, such as blue-tinged lips and fingernails, and if you have any doubt, intubate the patient. The third pearl is that seizures are treated with benzos, benzos, and more benzos. Most cases of seizures will respond to benzodiazepines and are less than 5 minutes in duration. There are a few options for benzos, but midazolam, aka Versed, has recently emerged as a favorite instead of lorazepam, aka Ativan. This has happened due to the recently published Rampart trial, which showed that IM Versed worked as least as well than IV Ativan. This study used 10 mg of IM Versed or 4 mg of IV Ativan and found that the two treatments were equivalent. The nice thing about IM Versed is that it can be given quickly without IV access, so it's easier to administer and it may eliminate having to start an IV in a patient who is flopping around from a seizure. One thing to notice here is the dose of Versed. This is not a few milligrams that you may use for anxiolysis or procedural sedation. This is a solid 10 milligrams IM dose. The other thing to notice from the study is that the dose of Ativan at 4 milligrams IV. I think we default automatically to 2 milligrams, but that is a relatively small dose of Ativan. If you're going to start with a dose of 2 milligrams of Ativan in an adult, Make sure to have another 2 mg ready to go in a few minutes if the seizure doesn't stop. The Rampart trials showed that 4 mg of Ativan is safe and effective for seizure control, so you can feel comfortable starting with 4 mg IV. You can also give Ativan IM, but you'll want to at least double the dose and realize that Versed may be a better option. Finally, remember that starting an intraosseous line in any critically ill patient is always an option if you can't secure IV access. Don't hesitate to place an I.O. line to make sure that you have enough IV access to accomplish what you need to do. You can even use the blood drawn from the I.O. for your labs once you have discarded 5 to 10 cc's. The only major lab that may not be accurate from an I.O. is the potassium, but most other labs will be the same as labs drawn from an I.V. So to sum this up, you'll want to give a dose of I.M. or I.V. benzos and keep giving them until the seizure stops. You can even double the initial dose of your benzos for the second dose. If you have made it to a second or third dose of benzos and the patient is still seizing, it is likely you'll end up intubating the patient anyway. After you've given your first round of benzos, you want to stop and think about your differential for the seizures. Make sure to do a full head-to-toe exam. Look for signs of head trauma, pupil changes that can suggest drug use, or any skin changes that could suggest trauma or infections like meningitis. You'll want to get a rectal temperature as well. Go through your AEIOU tips mnemonic and try to figure out if this could be a less common cause for the seizures, like an electrolyte abnormality or a tox cause. At this point, you'll want to send the labs that we talked about before. Since the patient is critically ill 
you'll want to get your usual CBC, Chem 10, serum or urine HCG, and a UA, as well as a creatinine kinase to check for rhabdo, and LFTs, tox labs to include an acetaminophen level, aspirin level, ethanol level, and a urine drug screen. There are several medications such as TCAs that can cause seizures, and an EKG that shows a wide QRS can be useful for diagnosing this overdose. However, getting an EKG on someone who is actively seizing is easier said than done. This is where getting a good history from the patient's family or EMS can be very helpful in figuring out why the patient is seizing. If the patient has had head trauma, or this is their first seizure, then you'll want to get a stat non-contrast head CT once you have the seizure activity under control. Now let's say you've given several rounds of benzos and the patient is still seizing. By this point, at least five minutes have probably passed, and now you are in the realm of status epilepticus. This represents a much more severe seizure that needs to be aggressively managed. First, let's give a little bit of background on status epilepticus. Five or ten years ago, you need to be seizing continuously for an hour before you'd be considering status epilepticus. We started realizing that patients were having trouble if we didn't treat them aggressively before the one-hour mark, so it got dropped to 30 minutes, and now it's down to 5 minutes. There's nothing magical about the 5-minute mark, but what it does is to make us more aggressive about treating seizures up front instead of waiting around for the seizures to stop. That being said, let's talk about our second and third line medications for treating seizures. At this point, you've already given several rounds of increasing doses of benzos, and the patient is still seizing. Your next step should be to load the patient on phenytoin, aka dilantin, but preferably phosphenytoin or Cerebrex. Phosphenytoin has three big advantages. First, you can load phosphenytoin three times faster than phenytoin, and phosphenytoin won't cause tissue damage and necrosis if it extravasates the way phenytoin can. Finally, if you try to infuse phenytoin through the same IV line as benzos, it will precipitate, but that's not a concern with phosphenytoin. For the next few medications here, you'll want to keep one number in mind, 20. This is a milligrams per kilogram dose for phenytoin, phosphenytoin, and phenobarbital. In order to remember these medications, I keep a small card with a stabist epilepticus algorithm in my pocket. I'll post the one I use on embasic.org. To load either phenytoin or phosphenytoin, the dose is 20 milligrams per kilogram. While some max out the dose at 1 gram of either medication, you want to go much higher if the patient weighs more than 50 kilograms. A 70 kilogram adult will need about 1.5 grams of phenytoin or phosphenytoin to be properly loaded. The difference in dosing between phenytoin and phosphenytoin is how fast it can be given. Phenytoin can be given at 50 milligrams per minute, while phosphenytoin can be loaded three times faster at 150 milligrams per minute. To go back to the 70 kilogram adult, that 1.5 gram loading dose will take 30 minutes for phenytoin, but only 10 minutes for phosphenytoin. So for the pharmacy purists out there, phosphenytoin is technically not dosed in milligrams, it's dosed in phenytoin equivalents, but the result is the same. Make sure to check and double check the loading dose and speed of infusion, because loading these medications too quickly can cause a lot of problems. Capra is another medication to consider in the treatment of status epilepticus. However, there isn't a lot of great evidence for its use in this situation. It can be given as part of the kitchen sink approach to those in status epilepticus. The dosage for Capra is 500 mg IV. If the patient is still seizing after benzos and a load of phenytoin or phosphenytoin, 
then phenobarbital is your next medication from the algorithm. Just like phenytoin and phosphenytoin, phenobarbital is dosed at 20 mg per kilogram. You'll give this over 20 minutes with a max of 1 gram. Giving phenobarbital will likely make the patient apneic, so you'll probably have to intubate the patient. You want to do an RSI in this case with your choice of RSI medications. While Atomidate is usually our go-to drug, there's limited evidence to say that ketamine may be beneficial in status epilepticus, so keep that in mind. As far as paralytics, a lot will choose succinylcholine since it will wear off within 5-10 to 10 minutes and allow you to get a neuro exam to see if the patient is still seizing. If you give rocuronium, you'll lose your neuro exam for 30-45 to 45 minutes. People will argue this point back and forth. Personally, I don't think that losing your neuro exam for an extra 30 minutes is worth the possible side effects of succinylcholine, but there's a lot of debate on this. In these patients, you will still be pushing the anti-seizure medications and calling neurology for a stat EEG, and they'll be going to the ICU. So I'm not sure that losing your neuro exam for a little longer is that big of a deal. However, you need to keep in mind that when you give something like rocuronium, you're going to be losing that neuro exam, and you won't be able to tell if the patient is still seizing so continue aggressively down your status epilepticus algorithm until you can get an EEG to find out whether the patient is still seizing or not. Another consideration for your choice of RSI medications is that propofol, aka diprovan, may help in stopping status epilepticus. You can load the patient with an intubating dose of 1 mg per kilogram and then titrate a drip until the seizure activity stops. Just watch out for the hypotension and apnea that can be caused by propofol. If you have gotten this far in the algorithm, then you will definitely be calling neurology for a stat EEG. This will allow you to see if the patient is having seizure activity, even if they are sedated and intubated, and even if they've gotten rocuronium. At this point, you can talk about doing a propofol or Versed drip, or other medications such as valproic acid, but this is very far down the algorithm, so you'll want to be on the phone with a neurologist at this point to come up with a plan. Let's talk about one final medication that you may have to give a patient with seizures hypertonic saline. Severe hyponatremia can cause seizures, and it's important to treat this condition quickly. You'll probably find out about the patient's hyponatremia once you get the labs back, but you should also be suspicious of hyponatremia if you get a history of the patient drinking an excessive amount of water, a history of GHB ingestion, or a patient with a history of hyponatremia. In these patients, you'll use 3% hypertonic saline at a dose of 2 to 3 mLs per kilogram, and rapid sequential bolses until the seizures stop. So for the average 70 kilogram adult, this works out to 150 to 200 mLs of 3% hypertonic saline. You can give hypertonic saline through a well-placed IV line or an IO line. This means that you can give it in a good 18 or 20 gauge IV in the antecubital fossa, but avoid it in that 24 gauge IV in the hand. Even if the patient's sodium is very low, you'll probably only need to correct it by a few points to stop the seizure. Once the seizure is stopped, stop the hypertonic saline, recheck the sodium level, and replace the sodium slowly over the next few days. Let's wrap this up by reviewing the treatments for seizures rapid fire. First, check the patient's glucose and correct it if necessary. Second, get the patient on high-flow oxygen ASAP to make sure the patient doesn't get hypoxic. Start securing an IV line, but don't hesitate to give IM medications like 10 mg of IM Versed in the meantime. Ativan 4 mg IV is a good starting dose once you have an IV secured. Most seizures will terminate in less than 5 minutes and with only one round of benzos, 
but don't hesitate to give increasing doses of benzos for seizure control if the seizures aren't stopping. Status epilepticus starts at 5 minutes of seizing, and that's when you will start to be getting more aggressive with the medications. Once you have given several rounds of benzos, the next step is phenytoin or phosphenytoin at 20 mg per kilogram with no real maximum. Don't stop at 1 gram if the patient is over 50 kilograms. Phosphenytoin is preferred since it can be loaded faster and without risk of extravasation or precipitation with other medications. The loading rate for phenytoin is 50 mg per minute and phosphenytoin is 150 mg per minute, but you should look this up to avoid any confusion. You can also consider giving Keppra 500 mg IV, but this is not well studied in status epilepticus. The next step is phenobarbital, dosed at 20 mg per kilogram IV with a max of 1 gram. This will most likely make the patient apneic, so be prepared to do RSI. Atomidate is okay, but ketamine or propofol may be helpful in terminating status. If you are concerned about getting a neuro exam back quickly, then use succinylcholine. If you want to use rocuronium, that is okay too, but most prefer to get the neuro exam back quickly. This is another debate for another day. If you innovate the patient, get a stat neuro consult for a bedside EEG to see if the patient is still seizing and admit to an ICU setting. Keep in mind that severe hypodatremia can cause seizures as well. You'll probably discover this on your chemistry panel, but also look out for patients who have consumed a lot of water, who have consumed GHB, or have a history of chronic hyponatremia. Give the patient 2 to 3 mLs per kilogram of 3% hypotonic saline in rapid sequential bolses until they stop seizing. This works out to a dose of 150 to 200 mLs in the average adult. That's all I have now for seizures. I know this was a long episode, but there was a lot to review on this topic. As always, email me with any comments or suggestions to steve at embasic.org. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EMBASIC podcast, signing off.